as you know from hearing me speak on many occasions, it's becoming a deeply rooted conviction in me that what we just sang is the true hope for world peace, that only the name of Jesus, as best I can see, draws all people to himself. And we're going to be talking about an issue of peace this morning. Before I bring up Father Shakur, I wish to let you know who he is a bit so that you'll appreciate the wealth of background he brings. Uh, We're greatly privileged. Just last night he spoke to a distinguished group at UCSB, which was perhaps the most uh, diversely sponsored group I've ever seen. His lecture was sponsored at UCSB by Westmont College, the Department of History at UCSB, the Department of Political Science, the Department of Religious Studies, the Global Peace and Security Group, the Program of Islamic and Near Eastern Studies, the Multicultural Center, the Muslim Student Association, and the Faculty and Staff Christian Community. Now, that's about as diverse a group as you can find, as well as the Interfaith Council of the URC. And what I sense is that in Father Shakur, he has lived a life centered in Jesus Christ as best he can. And that has a way of galvanizing people around it. He was born in 1939 in the village of Baram in Upper Galilee, Palestine, near where our Lord Jesus lived and uh, participated in his great Galilean ministry. He was born to a Christian family, a Palestinian Christian family, and they were members of the Melkite Catholic Church. That's an Eastern Byzantine church that's in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. He's the youngest of six children. When he was eight years old, the nation of Israel was beginning to try to be formed. And in the midst of that war, his family and all of the families in his village were evicted from their homes. And his family, along with thousands and thousands of others, uh, were made instant refugees within their own country where they had lived for thousands of years. He became a deportee and a refugee in his own country. But he, tra- he stayed in what is now the state of Israel, or Palestine, as, as it is also known. And because of that, he has Israeli citizenship at this, to this day. He was sent by his church, the Melkite Church, to Paris to study theology and biblical studies at Sorbonne University in 1965. He completed his studies there and was ordained a Melkite priest in 1965 in Nazareth, Israel. His first appointment was parish priest of a very small village called Ibelin on August 15, 1965. He then became, he was sent by his bishop to study at the Hebrew University, and he was sent there to study the Bible and Talmudic studies. He was the very first Arab student at Hebrew University, and he became a a sort of informal chaplain to uh, other Arabs in that area and to other students at that school. He's been a lecturer for the Department of the World Council of Churches in Switzerland, and he started so many organizations and groups that uh, they're too numerous to mention. But a score of libraries all, all around Palestine, Israel, youth centers. He has a youth camp in the summer, which now brings together 5,000 youth. He's had the bad experience of being kidnapped 
and held hostage at various points. It has not been an easy life. He's convinced that education is a key to bringing about reconciliation, and because of that, he's started several schools in the village, which is now a large town, of Ibeline. They currently have both a high school and a college, and the college is, uh, uh, all of the schools combined enroll around uh, 1,800 students. He's written two books. The first is called Blood Brothers, which is the first book I read by him. It's about his life. It's been translated into 28 different languages. The second book is called We Belong to the Land, translated into 11 different languages. He's a recipient of a very prestigious award, the World Methodist Peace Award. Former President Jimmy Carter is a a recipient of that award, as well as the late President Anwar Sadat of Egypt. So as you can see... We're very privileged to have the Reverend Dr. Elias Shakur here with us this morning. And will you please welcome him now? Let me just tell you how we're going to go about our, our time this morning. I'm going to give a very brief basic outline of some of the issues in Israel-Palestine, and then I'm going to ask a series of questions to Father Shakur, and uh, he'll be responding to those questions, and uh, during the time, later in the time, if some of you wish to ask a question, just uh, we'll, we'll make some time for that as well. It'll be more of a dialogue time this morning. Uh, many of us have been studying, especially the upperclassmen, and know quite a bit about this issue. Some of you may not know that much yet, and so I wanted to get us on the same ground. The, the nation of Israel ceased to exist in the year 70 AD when the Romans came in and sacked Jerusalem shortly after our Lord's death, some 40 years later. And after that, it ceased to exist until 1948. They were, the Jewish people were spread all over the world. And following the Holocaust in Europe, where the Nazi regime tried to uh, put to death every Jew in Europe, and did, sadly, a very efficient job of that, there grew a fervor to return to Israel, which is sometimes called Zionism. It is a movement that started much before that, but... Uh, because of the horror of the Holocaust, many Jews from Russia and Europe and the United States and all over the world came back to Palestine and started to claim it as their home territory. The problem was there had been people living there for 2,000 years who felt it was their home. And so uh, a hard time ensued. The Israeli uh, government was set up. It was recognized by the UN, but the Palestinian people were, as in Father Shakur's situation, in many, in many cases forced out of their homes and their villages. Many fled their country of Palestine to other neighboring countries and lived in refugee camps. And many stayed and became Israeli citizens. And to this day, there's been a tremendous conflict. President Yasser Arafat, the president of the Palestinian Authority, fought a war. Some would call him a terrorist. Others would call him a freedom fighter. 
and he fought a war to try to bring rights to the Palestinian people. In just recent times, there have been peace accords where uh, the nation, the state of Israel, has been working to try to work with the Palestinian Authority, and there's a new peace process that is, is very nascent, very young, trying to take root there. You should know that the West Bank means the West Bank of the Jordan River, a section just to the west of the Jordan River, and Gaza is a section in the southern part of, of uh, Palestine on the coast. And those two sections uh, are referred to by Palestinians as the occupied territories as well as some others in the north. And there's much frustration because there are two groups on the same land wanting a state. And that is, in a very brief and overly simplified way, uh, the situation we find ourselves in. So now I'd like to turn to uh, Father Shakur. And, and Father Shakur, I'd like to ask you to share with our students just a little bit about your family background, your childhood, and your father, especially in your book. You talk quite a bit about the impact uh, of your childhood. May I first uh, make some corrections Please. to what you said? Please. Good. First of all, the nation of Israel did not start to exist uh, when Israel was created. The nation was there and was scattered all over the world. And that has been no problem for the Palestinians that the Jewish nation existed. The problem started when the Jews in Europe, America, in the Middle East wanted a home, a homeland, and that happened to be my home, my homeland, and them coming back, they coming back, meant to me to become homeless and without any human rights. And that could not be accepted whatsoever. The problem is not at all the existence of the Jews as much as the deprivation of the Palestinians from their homeland, from their rights. And these Palestinians did not come to Palestine after the Jews left in the year 68 after Christ. We were there. They were evicted, not by the Palestinians, but by a Roman leader called Titus, that's, that's uh, the emperor of Rome. And we were there and we remained there. And we were always happy to be at home. We never imagined that one day someone would come and evict us to say, I was here 2,000 years ago, I'm coming back, I don't want you anymore with me here, because I have the might, I have the weapons, and I have the public opinion. And that's where I come to your question about my family. Well, I was born to a, an Arab-Palestinian family. I am a Palestinian, as you might guess so far. But I have no bombs, you know, don't be afraid. <laughs> I have no bombs. It's rather the bombs that were imported from the United States that terrorized me and reduced my people to a people of refugees, of deportees, a people of no human right whatsoever. And I wish these bombs never came to the Middle East. I was born to a Christian, to a Palestinian family. My mother language is Arabic. You imagine that Arabic is difficult, but remember that even little children in Palestine speak Arabic. <laughs> uh, and I was also in a family who was Christian. 
I am a Palestinian Arab Christian. And that happens, you know. Mm. Uh, Palestinian Christians are not monsters or something very rare or very, very special. Well, sure, we were converted to Christianity. For example, I was not born Christian, and I thank God for that. I don't know about you, Westmont students and faculty, if you were born Christians or you were like me, born babies. <laughs> but babies with an identity on the image and with the likeness of God. This is your identity. This is my identity. Later on, I received the baptism not so much to make of me a kind of new human being, but to renew in me my affiliation to humanity, to make me more aware of the dignity that God has given me on his image, with his likeness. I don't want more, but I do not accept anything less. So I was born a Christian and I was converted to Christianity. I mean, Palestinians became Christians like you became Christian, but with one difference. You became Christians because my forefathers came to this country, to all over the world, proclaiming what they have experienced with their compatriot. Palestinians became Christians not long ago, 2,000 years ago. When the man from Galilee, Jesus Christ, was touring our villages, hanging around, observing, watching, whatever we did, whether women baking or preparing banquets or shepherds, uh, keeping their cattle or their sheep and or when we were celebrating our burials, our funerals he was watching all that and he made of all of that the parables of the kingdom of, of heaven we still feel him present among us we still smell his presence well Palestinian Christians cannot speak about Protestantism, that's not relevant for us we can speak about Roman Catholicism. It's not important for us. We don't care for reformed, re-reformed, or not yet reformed Christians. <laughs> we care for one thing, that we have an empty tomb because the one who was there is risen. That's all we can speak about. This is our religion. And that's what we shared with you. It was my forefathers, the first who shared what happened with Jesus Christ and could not keep that for themselves. As, uh, as you know, they went all over the world proclaiming the good news. And when I see you gathered here and praying the Lord, I say to myself, oh yes, your forefathers have done a good job. It's because of them that you are Christians. So this is the origin of Palestinian Christianity that is now extremely threatened to disappear. Mm -hmm. Go back and tell us a little about your childhood experiences, Father Shakur. Yeah. And especially painful, about the yeah. time... Okay, go ahead. People have a happy childhood. At the age of eight, my father called us together, children, and said, within a few days, we might have Jewish soldiers. They will come to the village. They will not kill anybody. They have weapons. But they are poor people who escaped the persecutions of Hitler, this devil of Europe. And we Palestinians have to give them hospitality because they are our cousins. We are all children of Abraham. We are blood brothers, said my father. So don't be scared, but be prepared to give your beds for the soldiers. 
and I will invite you to, to sleep on the roofs of the house. In fact, a few days later they came. They took our beds. Father prepared a big banquet for them, like everyone in the village. They ate, they enjoyed our house, and we slept on the roof of the house for 10 days. After which, the officer of the army asked the elderly people to take their families and to leave for two weeks, security reasons. It's exactly state reasons. Now, if there's any Jew here who knows the history of the Holocaust, state reason is a criminal reason to transfer any human being. Because with this concept, state reason, Jews were transferred from the cities in Europe to the concentration camps. State reason. State reasons. They gave us a written promise that within two weeks we might come back. And I remember one evening, it was a Friday evening, we left homes and we went in the neighborhood to live under olive trees, under fig trees, in grottos, nearby the village, waiting the two weeks to pass so we can come back. 47 years ago today, we are still refugees, deportees. I remember two weeks later, my father and the senior citizens gathered and went back to the army, asking them the right to return. They went back, but they never came back. We learned that they were loaded onto military trucks and driven far away from Galilee to the uh, nearby of the city of Naplouz in the West Bank of the Jordan River. And under the threat of weapons, they had to cross the borders and to leave the country for good. And my father, like others, walked from Naplouz, crossed the Jordan River. And that's no problem to cross the Jordan River, by the way. I think there is much more ink spilled about that river than there is water in it. <laughs> so you can cross it very easily. Uh, and they walked to Amman in Jordan, to Damascus in Syria, to Beirut in Lebanon. Many, many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians walked this way of suffering and were stuck in the Arab countries and became the refugees in the Arab countries. My father was among the minority who was able to infiltrate back and to gain back his family. We were settled in a nearby village five kilometers away from our, my native village. Uh, it was a moment of very great emotions when we met back father coming from this big, big, big trip of suffering. But what was most, most uh, painful, and I don't wish you to be in that situation, was what happened immediately after that. It was the time of harvesting olives, figs, grapevines, and so on. And one day a Jew came to that village where we were refugees, and he wanted to hire all of us to go and collect our own fruits for him. There was a big discussion among the young and the elderly people. Young people did not want to go. They said, who is that Jew to ask us to go and work for a daily salary just for bread and food? And he would take the fruits of our lands and of our trees. That is not just. 
But the elderly people, like father, wanted to go. And they were able to convince the young people, saying, if we go, we will collect the fruits, and we will save the branches, we will not break the trees. We will respect the trees. So next year, the year after, when we come back, we will have our trees. Let him have the fruits for once or twice. And I went with my father and mother, who were collecting their own figs, and their olives, and their fruits, the whole day with full tears in their eyes. This was most unacceptable. This operation lasted one, two, three years, after which we noticed that we are becoming kind of slaves for that Jew. So everybody decided, we stop going there. Let them break the trees, destroy the trees. When we come back, we shall plant them back. And my father used to tell us, till he died five years ago, children never forget your rights to return to your home. My only wish is that I go back and rebuild the house of my ancestors and live there one day and then die peacefully. He did not have that pleasure. He always said to us, remember your right to return, but never use the violence that was used against you because those who will use violence will be one day the victim of violence. Yeah? And that's one side of that big story. Mm. My father died five years ago in the city of Haifa, far away from the ruined village. We transported him and we buried him in the cemetery of the destroyed village so that I can be joining his father, his grandfather, his ancestors. And my family tree goes back to the 16th century in that village. I know all my grandfathers. Father Shakur, could you briefly describe the, the different groups and the different perspectives, the primary groups in Palestine, Israel today? And what are the conflicts? What are the major issues that, that are being faced? Well, the ongoing conflict for the 47 years, the past 47 years, is a conflict that has nothing to do directly with religious problems or with racial problems. The conflict consists in identical claims of two nations on the same land. All of us want this land to be ours. Who are all of us? The Jews who came started to come in the early 40s after the horrors that started in Germany with the Nazi regime. Jews started to come to Palestine. And now there are 120 Jewish nationalities among the Jews. 120 Jewish groups who come from different nations and they never were able and are not yet, yet able to make a unity, a national unity. And the only thing that has been really uniting the Jews in Israel is the opposition of the Arab countries. They portrayed the Arabs as being someone who wants to engulf the Jews, to kill the Jews, to exterminate Israel. And that's why they had to be together to defend themselves. And amazingly enough, it was enough that one president called Sadat decides to come to Israel 
so that the whole language of Israel changes. Before he came, Egypt was portrayed as the 45 million enemies of Israel. One day after he came, it became the 45 million friends of Israel versus the others who are still the terrorists. Yeah? That's what it takes to change the image of a nation. That's one big block, the Jews who were a minority before 1947 and who suddenly became the very big majority because the Palestinians were evicted and deported and kicked out from their home and became either refugees in the Arab countries, and that's the biggest group, or remained in the territory that was not occupied immediately by the new army of Israel, and that's what Reverend Barth mentioned about the West Bank of the Jordan River and the Gaza Strip on the other side. And Gaza, it's a very special example in human history of the misery, horror, and injustice. In 47, the city of Gaza had only 15,000 inhabitants. They could hardly find anything to eat on that piece of sand. This is the Sinai Desert. There's only sand there. And from one month to another, it's so it's swollen up. And now Gaza has 900,000 refugees. These are the inhabitants, former inhabitants, of Jaffa, of Lod, of Ramla, of Tel Aviv, of Ashkelon, that were evicted. Their homes are still standing in these cities. So imagine 20 years after they became refugees, Israel occupied the rest of the territory of Palestine. And these refugees of Gaza were able to come back to Jaffa, to Lod, to Tel Aviv, to Ashkelon, to Ramla, but to come as daily workers, come in the morning and go back in the evening. And to whom did they work? To people who were living in their homes. They could know, this is my home. This is the home of my father. And I suppose that is extremely frustrating. Uh, inside Israel, there is also another group of Palestinians, those who managed to stay inside Palestine, among the Palestinians, inside Israel. And these are called the Israeli Arabs. Some call them the Arabs of Israel or the Arab minority in Israel. In fact, we are Palestinian Arabs who became Israeli citizens. And we are three major groups. The Muslims who are the majority among us. We are altogether 850,000 Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. Majority are Muslims. There are 160,000 Palestinian Christians among them, like me. And there are 45,000 Druze. Druze is a kind of Muslim sect that separated from Islam and became an independent religion. I allow myself to mention the Christian community in the Holy Land, the 160,000. They are facing an extremely dangerous threat. They are simply disappearing. To give you an example, in the occupied territories, West Bank and Gaza Strip, during the 20 past years, 
60% of the Christians have already left. And they went away. There's no more Christians there. And this threat is still there, endangering the survival of Christianity. And that's why what I try to do there is to give an answer to these Christians so that they can have some reason to stay in the country. Father Shakur, let me ask, you, you described Gaza, and on one other occasion you said to me that you have been in Calcutta, you've been in some very poor places, but you've never seen a poverty worse than in Gaza. Could you tell us how much, in our press, uh, when we see Gaza, the press uh, portrays it primarily as a place of violence, as a, a, a place of uh, threatening violence. Um, can you talk about the poverty and the violence and, and how you see those yeah. two? Well, you know, in Calcutta, in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Egypt, the poor there were born poor. And they almost have no hope to get out from their poverty because they have no experience of what meant to live normally. While the refugees in Gaza are people who have been made poor, who have been deprived from their homes, from their real estate, and they have been cornered not only to become refugees, but to be deprived from everything. Imagine a couple who left his home in Gaza and in, in Jaffa and was thrown into the desert of Sinai and lives in a small shack and they have their children in the small shack. Children grew up and have the second generation, the third, fourth, and fifth generation. I was in Gaza last year. I was with the delegation of World Vision and the Mennonites who are in Jerusalem. We were going to meet with President Arafat. It was a week after rain fall in Gaza. We had to drive in one of the roads of Gaza for over 15 minutes. All the wheels of the car were flooded with water. Not any water. Rain water with sewage water. That is okay if you drive. But at noon, when schools close and children have to go back home, we have seen hundreds of children, and we have so many children, we Palestinians, going out from their school, taking off their shoes, putting them in their shoulders, and crossing the road of the sewage water to go back home to have lunch. I would like you to imagine that it is you, that child. I would like you to imagine it's you, that mother, who will receive her children with not only the stink, but with the dirt of the sewage. What would you not do? Gaza has a 65% of permanent unemployment. What would you do if you are condemned just to sit there idle and doing nothing and have no meaning for your life? Violence is a big temptation 
because violence is the fruit of bitterness and of injustice. I would rather think, and I think often, when I see a person who despaired, I try to close my eyes and to see who is the criminal who cornered that person to get that far that he has no more hope in life. This is an image of Gaza. Have so many other images. When we reached to President Arafat's residence, which is a very humble resident, I asked him, President Arafat, what are your most urgent needs? He said, within a few days, we start school again. We need pens and pencils for our children. Imagine that is what Clinton would ask a foreign visitor. I need pens and pencils for American children. I went back to school in Galilee. I invited my students to give up one lunch. That's almost one and a half dollars. And with that money would buy pens and pencils. This money was matched by World Vision and Mennonites. We collected $30,000. It's like a drop in the ocean. It was much more to quiet our conscience than to solve a problem. That's why what you see from Gaza is only some features of extreme violence. You don't see the suffering. You don't see the ailing of people. I visited one family, 12 children, with father and mother and grandfather. That is almost 15 persons. The father was used to drive a lorry, a truck, and to earn enough money to provide livelihood for his family. He was imprisoned for two months only in Israel. He came back alive, but completely paralyzed. Could not walk, could not stand up. He creeps, his back is broken. His bones, the bones of his legs are broken. His mind is deeply handicapped. And they live, 15 person, with every month 70 shekel, that's almost $35 that they receive from Muslim charities. I saw four children sitting around a pot of water. On the surface there were some drops of olive oil and they had very hard bread. They used to break it, it's difficult to break, and to put it in that water till it becomes a little bit soft. And that's all they had to eat. That is much more than what we could expect. This is a shame for me. It's a shame for us. It's a shame for humanity. When so many productions and food is over there, few kilometers away from there, but they have no access, simply because they became the Jews of the Jews, the modern Jews. They became the new dirty Jews Dirty Arabs. In your media, my dear friends, 
we are still portrayed as the terrorists. Very few have understood that we are rather terrorized and there must be an end to this injustice before people lose hope and start doing the impossible things of committing suicide, killing others, saying it's better to die courageously than to live cowardly. You're lucky here. Let me ask you one final question. We'll have to open it Friday to the audience for, for questions. How have you personally dealt with that? You've faced prejudice. You've uh, faced injustice. What has kept that from turning to bitterness for you? Well, in fact, I never dealt with that. I'm still dealing with it. I'm dealing with it every day. Violence is every moment's temptation. To kick back is the instinctive reaction of us human beings. I have to deal that with every day. And I must say that what keeps me from kicking back is the fact that I remember that I was born a baby and that others, even my enemies, were born babies with the same identity like mine, the image and the likeness of God. And I don't know what is your faith, friends. It's your business. But for me, to be a follower of that man from Galilee, Jesus Christ, makes a lot of difference. A lot of difference. Without him, I would have done something very, very different. Maybe to say that sometimes we need to sit down, to calm down. And if you don't want to use this, the word prayer, at least to think over what for do we live? Is it to add one more criminal in human history? Or to add one more act of hope? You know, I was always shocked with what the Germans, the Nazi Germans have done against the Jews during Hitler period. And I was even more shocked to see that some of that has been reproduced against me. And I never wanted to go to any Holocaust monument in the world. And not even in Washington. Not mainly in Washington. Because there is no mention of the Palestinian Holocausts. So I went back to my village. And I built my own monument. Holocaust monument. You've seen that. Beth, you have seen that. You have seen that also. It's very special. It's two circular walls facing each other. It's built with strong concrete. No one can destroy them. On each wall there is a statement. One in Arabic, for the Arabs to read it immediately. And one in Hebrew, for the Jews to read it immediately. In Hebrew it is written, this is a memorial for Palestinian martyrs. And in Arabic, this is a memorial for Jewish martyrs. 
and the whole place is named and it's engraved in the concrete, this is a listening post. There are two places to sit and to listen to the martyrs. None would say, one more martyr. All of them together would say, enough martyrs, enough widows, enough orphans. And to you at Westmont, may I say, enough accepting easily the vague entity and the stereotypes. Jews are dirty, Palestinians are terrorists. Neither Jews were dirty in Germany, nor Palestinians are terrorists in Israel. We need to rediscover that we were all born babies on the image and the likeness of God. And as such, we are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. That's why I come back to you with so much love. And thank you for receiving Thank you. Thank you, Father Shikur. Let me close in a prayer. Father God, we thank you for bringing this friend to us to share a perspective that uh, we seldom, if ever, hear. We thank you for the educational opportunity to sharpen our minds, to think from different angles and different perspectives, and to challenge our own points of view to confront our own prejudices and stereotypes. Father, we pray that we might hear through Father Shakur the voice of his people and that you might touch our hearts to be advocates for all people, practical advocates in the name of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.